0: Iran has a new president, Mr. Ibrahim Raisi. After some initial controversy about his religious education and credentials, he declared himself an Ayatollah, an honorific title for high-ranking
1: Shia clerics. It was Iranian kings in the 16th century, in 1501, who uh, made Iran Shia. And, and what do you they, mean they, made Iran Shia?
0: Iran wasn't Shia before that?
1: No, Iran was that actually, that the Iran was Sunni, predominantly Sunni.
0: Did you know that until five centuries ago, Iran was a seat of Sunni learning? In fact, the Shiite clerics had to be imported to Iran from Lebanon and other Arab countries to help establish Shiaism in Iran. Hey there news peelers today is august 6 2021 and this is adele with the peel.news once a week i have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past We call this Peeling the History Behind News, the histories of many countries we read, watch, and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's, and China's histories, and of course, several series on the U.S. economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are research and written by scholars enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. This week, Mr. Ibrahim Raisi was sworn in as Iran's next president. In his earlier years, Mr. Raisi was a student at one of the seminaries of Iran's supreme leader. Ayatollah Khamenei, and he's generally viewed as the supreme leader's protégé. Mr. Raisi ascended to Iran's presidency after winning a June election in which potential rivals were disqualified from running against him. The New York Times states that President Raisi is an extremely conservative cleric who is responsible for the execution of thousands of Iranian political prisoners. And according to the Wall Street Journal, now that he is president, All branches of power in Iran are under the control of hardliners. This week the New York Times published an excellent article about Iran's system of governance. We have provided a link to that article in the detailed caption of this episode. Iran's system of governance is quite complicated. (laughs) Frankly, one needs a complex org chart to understand the relation between different institutions those within the government, and those outside of it. And when it comes to Iran, even the term government tends to be confusing. Equally complex is how this system was founded. Why is it a republic if it's an Islamic theocracy? Or is it both? And is there anything in the Shiite branch of Islam, as opposed to Sunni Islam, that specially lends itself to Iran's form of government, particularly its supreme leadership. To dig deeper and better understand the governing structure of the Islamic Republic of Iran, including its history, we spoke with Mr. Vali Nasser. He's a professor of Middle East Studies and International Affairs at Johns Hopkins University, and from 2012 to 2019, he served as the dean of Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies. Professor Nasser has advised senior American policymakers, including the President, Secretary of State, senior members of the Congress, and presidential campaigns. He has authored many books on Iran and Shiaism and has written for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Foreign Affairs, Financial Times, the Washington Post, and a host of other journals. He is a frequent guest on PBS, CNN, and other major networks. A link to Professor Nasser's academic homepage, which includes a list of his publications and accomplishments, is provided in the detailed caption of this episode, which was recorded a few days prior to Iran's presidential inauguration on August 5th. So stay with me as Professor Nasser and I peel the history behind this news.
2: This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.news podcast.
0: Professor Nasser, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. When it comes to Iran, we don't deal with current events and politics. Plenty of news agencies already cover Iran's news. We want to dig deeper for the stories and the history behind Iran's politics and news. For example, Mr. Ibrahim Raisi is about to become Iran's next president. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was elected by a percentage of Iranians, uh, but the story is more complex than that. Mm-hmm. The way I understand this, sir, An institution in Iran's government vets individuals who want to run in Iran's presidential election, what is that government institution? And and conceivably, I guess, that institution could disqualify hundreds of people from even competing in a presidential race. Am I correct?
1: Yes, you're correct. Uh, uh, it's not a government institution. It's, it's I guess not. I would say n- no, no. I mean because in Iran, in a in a very peculiar way, the Iranian government per se is the administrative wing of the state. So that's the president, the ministers, different government agencies, and then uh, uh, the, the the sort of. I, the, I apologize
0: the, for interrupting, Professor Nasir. I didn't, I didn't understand that sentence. Iran's government is an administrative wing of the state. Is that not true for every government, or do you mean something else by that that I didn't appreciate?
1: Well, in Iran, the division of powers are much deeper than than uh, uh, there are in other places. So, the supreme leader in Iran is technically not the government of Iran. He sits above the government of Iran. I see, I see. And then there is all these uh, religious institutions, other institutions that are not part of the government. So when the Iranians, let's say, they speak about the Revolutionary Guards, they don't see it as part of the government. The Revolutionary Guards does not answer to the president of Iran. So the titular head of Iran's government is its president by constitution. The titular head of the state is the supreme leader. And that's part of the whole Byzantine structure of Iran, because uh, from the very beginning, the Iranian constitution of the Islamic Republic conceived of the role of the supreme leader as a kind of a Caesar and Pope. That sets sort of an infallible religious leader that also oversees the Iranian, the operation of the Iranian government, but sits above the constitution and above the, above the government.
0: And uh, so one, this person, the Supreme Leader, Dr. Nasser, has to be a religious mm-hmm. person, correct? OK, so uh,
1: not, not just a religious person. He has to be a member of a senior member of the clergy,
0: senior member, of the clergy. Uh, uh,
1: because but by uh, the theory of the that the Ayatollah Khomeini brought to the Islamic Republic was that a, a genuine Islamic state has to be based on the Sharia. The religious law and the people who are most qualified to interpret and implement the sharia are people who are educated in it so the senior most among them technically should be in charge of uh, overseeing that the sharia is implemented in the state so as a result you cannot have a supreme leader who's not a member of the clergy who hasn't been to seminary who doesn't have his chops as a, as, a, as a member of the clergy. Uh, uh, but, but the
0: president doesn't have to be a member of the clergy. For example, n- Ahmadinejad was no. not a member of the, okay.
1: No, in fact, the very first Iranian presidents after the revolution, uh, uh, according, none of them were members of the clergy. I think the first two, the first two which is Bani Sadr and Rejai, uh, uh, Bani Sadr was impeached and Rejai was assassinated were not members of the clergy. So they were laymen. And then uh, the very first president of Iran who was a member of the clergy was actually the current supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei. Uh, oh, so who he, at one Iran's point president. he was a
0: president. I see.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: As an outsider, I want to know how Iran's supreme leader and the president are supposed to work together. And I'm not being cute here, just sort of practically. I mean... Imagine President Biden, who's elected by the people. In addition to dealing with the U.S. Congress, the fifty states, and our federal court system, including the U.S. Supreme Court, also has to deal with some lifetime leader with a powerful role in our government who's not elected by the people. How does that work in Iran? I mean, it would. Not, I don't think that would ever work in America, right?
1: No, uh, and, and, and it doesn't always work uh, very um, uh, smoothly either, because uh, the president is in charge of the day-to-day affairs of the state. Uh, and, and, but at the same time, he does not hold all the cards. He's not the, he doesn't appoint the commanders of the military or the head of the judiciary uh, or uh, the commanders of the Revolutionary Guard. Those are appointed by the supreme leader. He does not have control over vast areas of the economy that are controlled by these foundations. In, uh, is that
0: supposed to work that way? Are, are are these limitations to the president's power that you enumerated uh, written in the constitution or is that something that has evolved over the
1: past 40 years in Iran? Both. In other words, like uh, when when wow. Ayatollah Khamenei became supreme leader, succeeding Ayatollah Khomeini. What that year was point, that, were, sir? Uh, That was in 1989. Okay. In that year, there were constitutional changes made uh, in which uh, the, the, the appointment of the heads of uh, Iran's military was removed from the powers of the presidency and given to the Supreme Leader. The head, of, According to Iranian constitution, the head of the judiciary is appointed by the Supreme Leader. So, so there are actual appointments of important organs of the state that are in the hands of the supreme leader the guardian council who was your you mentioned at the outset uh, namely this uh, 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 consultative body that has veto power over all legislation and veto power over who runs for parliament uh, and for presidency is also appointed by the supreme leader as are members of other important uh, consultative bodies in you know, Iran ca- uh, 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 like the Council of national expediency but the foundations uh, have organically grown in size in Iran but because they're part of the supreme leaders' office uh, as in Iran they refer to it in shorthand the betarahbar the household of the of the of the leader they are basically not under government's control. So I think the closest system outside, and this is a very still rough uh, approximation, is actually the French system, where you have a president and a prime minister. The prime minister of France is in charge of making the trains run on time, so day-to-day affairs of the government, uh, minutiae of administration, whereas the president of France is uh, in charge of the entire state of France. Now, there in France is much clearer where the boundaries are. The Iranian president is really more like the French uh, prime minister, but even the boundaries are even more fuzzy because uh, he's responsible for everything, but he does not have control of everything. And I think this came out most clearly when- Responsibility
0: without, without authority.
1: To without full authority. He has authority, authority over certain things. Uh, And also, uh, uh, so this became very clear in Iran when Ahmadinejad became president. And he was the president who actually challenged the supreme leader most aggressively. Ironically, he came from the same faction. Oh, Uh, I thought he was, was, uh,
0: I thought Ahmadinejad was in line with the supreme leader. You're saying no, no, he challenged him. Okay. No, no,
1: he challenged them for turf. It's it's, uh, to be aligned. And, you know, when you stand very far from Iran, uh, all, all the conservatives look alike. Like all Republicans will look alike to somebody sitting in Japan or in the Middle East. When <laughs> so you true. come close, uh, you would see that Romney and uh, you know uh, uh, and uh,
0: McCarthy uh, are different.
1: McCarthy don't, don't get along. They're the very different beasts. That's true. Uh, uh, sometimes for personal reasons, sometimes for political reasons. But but where, where uh, Ahmadinejad said something which was actually very telling. He says, "I do not intend to be the administrative president of Iran." Means that I'm not wow. just an administrator, right? I want I want real authority, and that's where it got into the hair of the supreme leader, and and he had to be swatted down repeatedly. Uh, and uh, now, uh, uh, you know, I like in Iran, the also,
0: you swatted down <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> no, he was. He was literally had to be
1: put. And and at one point, uh, uh, over the dismissal of a minister or somebody he wanted to appoint, who the supreme leader didn't agree to he actually uh, made a big show of uh, of uh, removing himself from government and going and sitting at home and saying i'm basically striking as iran's president <laughs> which was a big that embarrassment a, yeah uh, uh, and because it was very well known that he was striking in in objection to this
0: was publicly of, known iran's publicly people? known I mean,
1: oh wow but because he comes from that same right wing faction uh, and, he's, and he had a lot of pop, uh, popular support because of his populism. It was difficult for the Supreme Leader to just do to him what he can do to moderates and reformists.
0: Which is to just. Which retreat. is,
1: you know, to, to attack him very publicly or yeah. to or to threaten him to put him in jail and all of that. So, so it uh, wasn't an
0: ideological sort of a skirmish. It was
1: for power. Yes, it was for authority. You see, yeah. Ahmadinejad wanted to be a re- the real boss of Iran. He wanted to make Iranian presidency a real presidency. Gradually, of course, right? Gradually. And yeah. the Supreme Leader didn't allow him. Now, now there are two other things I want to add. Uh, so one is that the division of power between the different branches of Iranian government are as as consequential and serious and perhaps sometimes more so than uh, in the United States. Namely, the Iranian parliament is completely independent of Iranian president. Yes, it's controlled by the Guardian Council and by the Supreme Leader, but he has no problem impeaching, uh, you know, uh, the president's uh, cabinet, rejecting his budget, criticizing him, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, doing the th- kinds of things that the Congress in the US does to an American president. And on the other side, Iran's judiciary uh, is also completely independent from Iranian president. It's, it's entire apparatus, ju- senior judges and the chief justice is appointed by the supreme leader. Uh, very importantly, like Mr. Raisi was made chief justice by the supreme leader, not chief justice, chief of the judiciary, Uh, by the Supreme Leader over, you know, he didn't even consult Mr. Rouhani. And then Mr. Raisi actually had a different candidate in mind as his own replacement. And the Supreme Leader appointed somebody who's actually personally a a rival of Mr. Raisi as chief of the judiciary. And then the final thing I wanna say is that because of, but but you see, unlike European countries where at least the, the lines of communication between these branches, are established much more clearly. In Iran, it's not. Like, technically, the Iranian president should be able to appoint all of his ministers, or let's say Iran's ambassador to the UN, but in practice, he does privately consult with the supreme leader. If the supreme leader really doesn't want you to appoint somebody and you appoint it, then you have a sort of a kabuki game of, you know, undermining, pushing back, you know, which, which makes the Iranian political system extremely complicated and, and difficult. And, and so uh, there is a lot of informal politics in Iran that happens outside of uh, the main the main um, uh, uh, channels of politics.
0: Professor Nasser, at the beginning of this segment, I said we're not about politics, and but I'm going to ask a question that's marginally, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I, I just can't help but not ask this question. The way you portray iran's president it seems like he doesn't have that much power so why would we americans negotiate with him over nuclear issues or why, why would thailand negotiate with iran's president over trade why not just go straight to the supreme leader i mean do you see what i mean it's like i'm buying a home from
1: you but you don't own the home so why am i talking to you it, does that make sense Yes, but, but you see that the, the, the Supreme Leader doesn't negotiate with Thailand or the United States directly. It's not a choice we have. Uh, uh, he has an administration and, uh, and ultimately if we make a deal with this president uh, or that president- but And Supreme Leader uh, can negate it, right? Not, not in the way in which uh, it's kind of like say if the president of the United States sent his uh, secretary of state to negotiate with China, the Chinese are negotiating with that person, fully understanding that uh, ultimately the president of the United States would have to say yes or no. But it's not like these are completely divorced, that the secretary of state is arriving in Beijing on his own without authority. And then, and then the other that. side is that personalities matter. I mean, very quickly, the United States negotiators are going to find out that negotiate, even though they poo-pooed. Uh, Iran's moderates and uh, uh, foreign minister and president, and they were attacked incessantly. Uh, they're going to find out that it was much better talking to them, <laughs> than, than it's going to be talking to uh, yeah, you, uh, you know Raisi's team. Uh, but ultimately, so so, and, and it's true of, of of people dealing with the U.S. People, many countries much rather talk to John Kerry than Mike Pompeo.
2: Not only I for political
1: it. reasons, but yeah. also because one of them comes wanting to make a deal, at least tries to get to a place where you can sell it to both capitals. One of them comes not even interested in getting to a deal. One of them knows how to negotiate. One of them doesn't even know how to negotiate. Right? So, so ultimately- Wow, that
0: is such a good analogy. Okay, go ahead.
1: Well, I mean, ultimately, Please. the Supreme Leader did approve the 2015 nuclear deal. We forget that. We negotiated that with the Iranian president and pro- pro- foreign minister, and Iran did implement its part of the deal. Now, if we didn't ask for enough at the deal, if we have buyer's remorse, if we thought we should have got more, that's that's not the deal. That's We should have done that at the table. And the Iranians had the same thing. I mean, the Supreme Leader kept telling Iranian president, you didn't negotiate properly. These guys didn't lift the sanctions they promised. So
0: Iranians were unhappy with the deal as well.
1: Well, yes, actually much more so so than us because we got everything that was written in the deal. The Iranians didn't get that. And then the deal was taken off the table after they did their part. So uh, the fact that a deal is good or bad has nothing to do with whether one side abided by it or not. I mean, these are two different issues.
0: Yeah. Um, Briefly, before we leave this segment, just are there any limits to iran's supreme leader's power and that's a that's that's a <clears throat> two, two two layered question one limitations in the constitution and two practical limitations
1: there are no limitations in the constitution the only case wow. is that if he's considered to be senile or incapable of performing his duties let's say he has a stroke or You know, is no longer able to do that. There is a council of experts, which is one of those councils, except its members are actually elected. That chooses can choose to basically uh, transition to a new supreme leader, and that's the council that actually would would choose its successor were the supreme leader to die as well. So it's a council that has only one job to do, basically. It's always sitting, but it has only one job to do, which is. uh, But. So that's constitutional. No, there's no real constitutional authority because the Supreme Leader is pretty much the Pope. As I said, this is a system where wow. he's both Caesar and Pope. He's kind of like the Pope inside of Vatican. I mean, he's, he's, he's the big boss ultimately, but he's also the supreme religious authority in Iran, right? At least symbolically. Yeah. So, yeah. So you cannot, that, that basically means that he can, has to be kind of treated as infallible. But in reality, there are a lot of risk, uh, limitations. I think powers, it powers, because uh, uh, Iran has a very multi-layered political system with a lot of power centers, and it takes a lot of political capital to have absolute authority. So uh, uh, it, the supreme leader has far less authority than than the leader of North Korea, for instance, or, or Bashar Assad in in, in Syria. Syria. Hmm. Or maybe even CCE or, or Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia and, and, uh, and Egypt. And, and, the, and, and the reason for this is is the following, is that in any political system, there is a cost to saying my way or the highway, right? And yeah. People can resist you. Uh, uh, and and uh, uh, people can say no. And some of these people are very powerful, like clerics in Qom, like ma- powerful seminaries, like right-wing um, independent power centers that are even to the right of the Supreme leader. It's much like the Republican president. I mean, he has to listen to different constituencies. Now, in Iran, what the Supreme leader does often is to try to build a consensus. And that's why in Iran, uh, decisions take a long time to be made. But once they're made, they, they, they actually they're are ironclad. Brutal,
0: right. Yeah.
1: So it takes... Some decisions are easier, some decisions are more difficult. Like the Supreme Leader has had to maneuver quite a bit to get agreement for uh, Iran to return to nuclear talks in Vienna. Uh, The the, the hardline conservatives in Iran were opposed to the talks and wanted Iran to formally leave. The moderates wanted a deal. And he basically had to sort of uh, create create a sort of a position that he said they can go to Vienna, but with these red lines. I see. Or you know, so certain things. So, so it's so he is. He's not. It's not a, He cannot just wake up in the morning and say, you know, the sun rises in the in the west. Uh, uh, he, and, and one of the reasons that he's been sitting there for thirty-seven years and has kept the Iranian system together, and this state has not fallen apart, despite international pressure, even including in the last four years. Is exactly because he he governs absolutely by creating broad consensus, and then you know obviously where need be there is brutal exercise of force uh, as well uh, uh, when need be. But but no, on, not on every everything is not that way. So so uh, there, he does have certain limitations on his on his ability. And and I give you one example. So in 1997. He, uh, he he came out very. He came out and endorsed the presidential candidate and then the it's, it's, uh, an overwhelming majority of Iranians uh, uh, elected. Was president that President
0: Khatami? Hattami, that's the right. One, the one that did the soccer diplomacy with President Clinton? Well, yeah, the most the
1: most reformist president yeah. Iran has had since the revolution. Now, that was a big egg on the supreme leaders face. Right. So it told them. I thought that- you
0: said he endorsed President Khatami. No, he
1: endorsed the conservative candidate. An overwhelming oh. majority came and voted for Khatami, even though it was uh, uh, the Guardian Council had already vetted everybody. So the people of Iran, even members of the Revolutionary Guards, etc., they basically said, we don't care what you say. We're going to vote for him. And so that was a limitation in his power.
0: Interesting. He- wow. That is very interesting. Um- Good example. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about other branches and aspects of Iran's government?
2: Did you know you can preview our podcasts? That's right. Just click the podcast highlights button on our website, www.thepeel.news, and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free pretty cool right
0: professor nasser here in america the president can come up with all sorts of policies and plans but, but but almost nothing happens if the us congress doesn't come up with or refuses to come up with the money to pay for it right so my question is this: does Iran's Parliament, similar to our Congress, hold the power of the purse in Iran?
1: Not in the same way. Uh, in other words, the, How's the, the The difference is that the government puts together a budget and presents the budget to the Parliament and the Parliament has to vote on the budget. but the Parliament does not do ongoing appropriations like in the in the US. In other words, if you have a new uh, infrastructure bill in Iran, you don't go back to the parliament. It should have been part of your budget at the beginning or you put it in the budget next year. So it's it's all sort of put together. So it's not the power. It's not the power of the purse in the way in which it works in in America. But generally, the parliament has a great deal of oversight on on uh, on government behavior and government actions and government performance. They can summon ministers or deputy ministers or assistant secretaries before before parliament to answer. Uh, Like Iran's foreign minister Zarif was was summoned to the parliament multiple times to explain uh, various things about the nuclear deal. They can be impeached. Uh, There were ministers who were impeached in the past for uh, Either violating ideological does issues. does
0: impeachment mean removal in America? If you're impeached, you're yep. not necessarily okay. Um, removal. Let me let me tell you why I asked that question. It seems you keep on using the term government when we talk about Iran's parliament and the Iran's government budget. Is that completely disassociated from? I don't even know how to say this. The other sort of background bodies that rule over Iran, such as the leadership or bunch of consultative bodies that you identified, do they have a whole different budget that is not within the purview of the parliament?
1: Technically, it is with the, uh, technically uh, 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 the salaries of, let's say, judges are paid by the U.S. by, by the Iranian government, uh, but. Uh, there, are, there are aspects, uh, but, but the parliamentarians generally do not sort of object to the budget of the judiciary or the budget of the military. It's usually uh, the, the budget for development issues or, or projects that the, that the government uh, itself has. But there are aspects of the Iranian budget that are opaque or not seen, like uh, how much money genuinely goes to the Revolutionary Guards as Ports uh, force which does uh, operations outside. How much money does it really go to Hamas or Hezbollah or Shia militias? What channels do they go through? So they're not obviously written into the Iranian constitution. And some of these bodies, uh, particularly military bodies, also have their own channels of fundraising. Like if they make money off of deals in <laughs> Iraq or uh, or they're oh, wow. engaged in, in 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 black market trade in Iran or they're engaged in black market trade in Syria, or they have uh, uh, companies that they've set up in Turkey. Which gives them more government.
0: independence from uh, exactly. Congress, from Iran's there's parliament. A, there's black or, budget.
1: Oh. There's black, there's definitely there's black, black budget. budget. Uh, uh, Professor Nasser,
0: you've used the term, I apologize for interjecting here. You've mm-hmm. used the term military and revolutionary guards several times, almost interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Are they different? Is there a traditional military? And then the Revolutionary Guard is on the side also, but the Revolutionary Guard is really under the uh, control of the supreme leadership? Or is the military really not playing a significant role anymore? Uh, I often when I uh, hear Iran's news, it's all about, you know, read the Wall Street Journal or New York Times is all about the Revolutionary Guard, you don't really hear about the military in that sense.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, That's correct. So so there was always an Iranian military going back to the time beginning of the 20th century when a modern Iranian military was established by the Pahlavi dynasty. After the revolution, it was purged, but it's still there with several hundred thousand men. The revolutionary guards essentially came uh, out of the volunteers that joined the revolution and and, uh, particularly fought in the Iran-Iraq war uh, and, and gained military experience. Now, uh, w- w- those people who remember Iraq under Saddam, there was the Iraqi military and there was the uh, uh, Iraqi Republican Guard, which was yeah, the, yeah. The sort of the, the praetorian guarded regime. So the Revolutionary Guard started that way. I-, I mean, the revolutionaries in Iran in their first decade didn't really trust the Iranian military. They thought this was a nationalistic military that was a remnant of the Shah, Shah's period. So they they, they they began to embellish the Revolutionary Guards as the real protector of the regime. And then over time, the Revolutionary Guard began to become much more of a formal military. It developed its own Navy, its own Air Force, yeah, its own it military seems industrial like complex, its own expeditionary force, the Quds Force, which is operating outside. It gets most of the budget. It is deployed in the most sensitive places now it has its own intelligence wing which is the most powerful intelligence inside iran and the military is there it's important supplemental force uh, it defends the borders if you went on the borders of afghanistan or tajik uh, you know uh, turkmenistan or pakistan there's a lot of military regular military presence but the regular forces uh, uh, don't have the same uh, political weight as revolutionary guards I uh see. and and they don't also they're not deployed in the very clearly strategic places. Uh, it, let's say is, border the military, of the
0: rocket, is the military controlled by the president or no No, it's, it's no. still or, under or the,
1: the supreme leader the commanders are all the commanders are all uh, appointed of revolutionary guards and the military are appointed by the by the supreme leader
0: you've used the term appointed several times uh, when it comes to the supreme leader um does it have to go through a confirmation process, or that's it? Is appointed and it's done?
1: For those, it's 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 done. I mean, the idea that if, that that the parliament will have a second guess the supreme leader's appointment <laughs> runs in the face of <laughs> of the whole way in which the supreme leaders made that yeah. infallible pope sitting up exactly. there. Exactly. Uh, um, but the minister, the ministers, the the ministers have to be uh, uh, approved by the parliament. So, uh, but the ministers
0: are part of the. Government. I see. I got yeah, it. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: I wanted to get some clarification on another phrase you used, consultative bodies. And, mm-hmm. and, and you can see how that's sort of foreign mm-hmm. to us here in America. Are they like think tanks or do they mm-hmm. really have some weight in what happens? It seems to be the latter. For example, you said uh, council of experts and the guardian council. Is there an analogy? Yeah, uh, so, so,
1: uh, there are, yes, I mean, consultative in the sense that there's more than one person and their job is to consult and render a verdict. So obviously, the largest consultative body in Iran is the Iranian parliament, but which is elected by the people. The Council of Experts is also elected by the people. It's the one that I said has has oversight over succession and performance yeah. of the They Supreme have one Party.
0: job, yes. One yeah. job.
1: The Guardian Council is the one that has oversight over legislation, as well as vetting of candidates uh, for, for elections, uh, elected offices, and that one is appointed by the Supreme Leader. And then there is also a Council of uh, National Expediency, which is, again, an appointed body which sort of advises the Supreme Leader on uh, and, and the government on national issues. So... Uh, they each have a different function. Uh, they, they don't report to the uh, to the uh, uh, government in Iran. They are independent of Iranian president. Uh, they operate on their own, whether they're elected or appointed. Uh, they are powerful parts of Iranian political system that the Iranian president actually has no control over.
0: Wow, I feel like I need a complex org chart to, to it, figure Absolutely. Out-
1: Iran's Absolutely. political system, um, and I, it, I, if I may add very quickly, then when do. it comes to foreign policy, there is an organ which is uh, stipulated in the Iranian constitution. is called the Supreme C- Council of National Security, which which discusses all major national security issues, and uh, like foreign minister, minister of defense, uh, president uh uh you know commanders of major commanders of the forces uh 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 uh, sometimes former presidents for you know they they have a seat at it and issues like uh should we be talking to saudi arabia should we negotiate with the us they all go to the national security when uh, the united states killed qasem soleimani
0: Mm-hmm,
1: the, mm-hmm. the the General Soleimani. January like of how, last year. Right. So this is a decision, the, the, the Iranian response, and even the Supreme Leader would give that response that, that discussion to the S- S- Security Council in Iran. Is this Security Council
0: where, part of the government or no, it's an extra governmental no, body?
1: It's an extra governmental body. It's a constitutional body. It's a, provided for an Iranian constitution. And technically, the Supreme Leader does not sit above it, but it has control over it so it's basically receiving uh, opinion from it the government's receiving opinion from it it's 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 a different kind of a consultative body it's basically it. a, a national security consultative body uh,
0: professor nasser here in america an american citizen uh, under the powers of article 3 of our constitution can go to a state or a federal court and sue various government uh, officials and there there are limitations to that as well of course what i want to know is is the same possible at least theoretically in Iran? could an iranian citizen go to a judiciary which is not which is which is which is not part of the obviously the executive branch and sue iran's environmental policy in the caspian sea or iran's uh Gosh, whatever it is, you know, budget. Is that possible?
1: Uh, no, it doesn't correspond similarly. In other words, you, you have to have grounds to, to, to launch a complaint, a legal complaint. And, and uh, uh, so, so either there has to have been a criminal doing or uh, some kind of a violation of administrative uh, and legal rules and norms to give somebody grounds to do that and I then see. so so it's not as it's not the, the legal system you know iran's legal code before the revolution was modeled after the french swiss and belgian code so civil system civil system and then after the revolution they put the sh- sort of sharia rules on top of that
0: sharia being islamic law
1: well islamic law but but the, but the fundamental methodology of, of thinking about rights of citizens rights of society uh uh you know governments imperatives of 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 those in authority was very much european and not and not not anglo-saxon in that interesting. sense interesting
0: interesting um, i have a lot more questions <laughs> frankly about iran's government structure but i want to stop because i have uh, uh, another question that keeps on gnawing away at me and that is the term ayatollah mm-hmm. you, you know So many Iranian high-ranking officials are termed ayatollah, including uh, the supreme leader. What does that term mean?
1: I mean, literally, it means sign of God. It's a term that literally in the late 19th century, early 20th century became invoked as uh, clerics became more and more prominent in politics. And it was kind of like an elevation of... uh, their status, just like the kings got more lofty titles, the ayatollahs uh, also gave themselves lofty titles. Before that, you know, you didn't refer to you refer to major clerics by just their name. Uh, Oh really?
2: Yeah, I mean like if
1: you went back to 19th century, the major clerics were known as just like so and so of Najaf or so and so of 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 Isfahan, but they they weren't given titles like uh, Ayatollah. Now, uh, now that it's been formalized, I mean, you know, there there is a hierarchy within uh, Shia uh, uh, religious establishment, which is somewhat similar, grosso modo, to Catholicism. In other words, somebody goes to seminary after years of study, he basically gets a certificate from his mentor and seminary that he's now qualified to be a cleric. You could say.
0: How many years of study?
1: Sometimes five, six, seven years of studying. I mean, uh, it's very much like an Oxford, Cambridge model. In other words, you, you just study until you're ready. Uh, it could be <laughs> many years, and and and. What, but once you so so. The, and, and look, the education of clerics is law is legal education. It's all about law. They're lawyers essentially.
0: So do they uh, uh, do they do they learn uh, Islamic law, Sharia law, as well it. as other? Do they no. know civil
1: or common law? No, no. Now okay. in Iran, they do. It is all post-revolution because they have to run a government and run a state. They have seminaries that teach English. Sometimes they teach computer science, things that are modern. Oh,
0: wow. Okay. Not, not all.
1: Some do. Uh, some do. But, okay. but the, fundamentally, the education of Shia clerics is law. They're lawyers it's because they interpret the law for everyday man. It's kind of like rabbis. Yes, some may study philosophy or theology, but fundamentally... Uh, Islam and Shi'ism, much like Judaism, is a religion of law. So everyday people have legal questions. Uh, I did this. Is it allowed? Can I eat this with that? Can I travel with this person? Can I not fast during these days? So you, you go to your local cleric and and he, he gives you a verdict of law. It could be high law. It could be low law. And as the person... Uh, after seminary become writes more and more legal opinion becomes better known more and more people follow him more and more people give him their religious taxes he becomes more and more and more more prominent and usually you have in before the islamic republic was there usually there were like four or five and very rarely just one uh, very senior ayatollah And that was measured based on how many Shias actually followed him. Like currently, Ayatollah Sistani in Iraq is as close as you come to a single uh, uh, senior Ayatollah. He has the largest amount of followers from Pakistan and India all the way to Lebanon and, and Iran. And also, he gets the most amount of religious taxes. And, but Wait, Ira-
0: is is Ayatollah Sistani of Iranian descent?
1: He's of Iranian descent, as his name says, but in his entirety of his life, he's lived in Iraq. I mean, literally, when he was a young nineteen-year-old, seventeen-year-old seminarian, until so now. I-
0: so Iranian Shiites also give him religious taxes because they follow right. his edicts.
1: Right. And and, and in the case of Shiism, historically, before Islamic Republic demanded absolute allegiance, which it hasn't got from Shias, but it demanded (laughs) it, who you chose as your Ayatollah was voluntary. So yes, there are grand Ayatollahs in Qom, which sit outside of the Iranian government, pure scholars, no political affiliation, who have followers. People give them taxes, people follow their, their lead, uh, people ask them uh, legal questions, and some people choose Sistani. Sistani has a lot of followers in Iran. He has a lot of followers in Lebanon, in Iraq, uh, in uh, in the Arab, uh, in the Shia parts of the Persian Gulf region, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, among the Hazaras, in India, uh, as well as in London, New York. You know, wherever there are there are Shias, but there are other Ayatollahs as well, and Sistani is now. Senior most, not because somebody appointed him or his peers appointed them, but essentially by the religious vote of the of the Shias, because he has the biggest following and he has the biggest purse uh, uh, individual do, and b- based on based on uh, donations.
0: Do Iranians donate to Ayatollah Khamenei? Sort of. Well, I mean, no. he's become political. How did,
1: that's no. Gets confusing. They don't. Uh, 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 majority of pious Shias do not view Ayatollah Khamenei as their religious guide, and and here's the dilemma the Islamic Republic. Had. No, no, no. Here, here's the dilemma that the Islamic Republic had: that it could not replicate Khomeini. Khomeini was simultaneously a, a supreme Ayatollah, but also head of state, but. As time goes forward, those clerics who really care about scholarship are sitting in a seminary, studying, writing, kind of like professors at universities.
0: They're away from politics.
1: Right. Those clerics who get involved in politics don't have time to be doing scholarship. So Ayatollah Khamenei, even though he's called Ayatollah, is kind of, I would say, is kind of like a young assistant professor who never got tenure. I mean, no. His 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 uh, his power and legacy comes from political activism, not from anything he's written religiously. He never got credentials as a senior ayatollah, so he went to jail under the Shah. He was a political activist. He's apparently very good wow. at policy analysis. He can read budgets. He can read, you know, uh, government documents. He was Iran's president. So so. In a way, ironically, the Islamic Republic, uh, the the people who man it have turbans, but they're bureaucrats or politicians. The real ayatollahs are not in government anymore. So you have a de facto separation of religion and politics.
0: Do we have more ayatollahs now than we did, let's say, 70 years ago?
1: Uh, Yes, but the the title is now being used pretty loosely. I mean, recently there was a big debate whether Raisi should be called an Ayatollah or Hujatul Islam, which is a lower rank. Really? Uh, How did right, that go but, over? Well, of course, because his president is going to be referred to by a certain member of the media, particularly right-wing media, as uh, as uh, Ayatollah Raisi. So, so this is after the Islamic Republic, these titles are now part of the political I see. Uh, I see. discussion in Iran rather than the way in which it used to happen in seminaries and you had a kind of a, kind of a grassroots ascription of, of stature by, by, by followers and lower ranks that would elevate somebody like Sistani, right?
0: Got it, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I follow. Um, why don't we take a break here? We'll be back after this short break to talk about Iran and Shi'ism.
2: We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click, click, the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you.
0: Professor Nasser, is there anything inherently in Iran's dominant religion, Shi'ism, that particularly lends itself to Iran's form of government, of particularly of having an all-powerful lifetime supreme leadership.
1: Yes. I mean, first of all, there's something in Shiism itself, as opposed to Sunnism, uh, 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 sh- uh, which in which uh, clerics are more like Protestant pastors. Uh, Shia clergy have a lot more religious authority because uh, she has believed in messianism much like christians and jews do in a very serious in, in, a, in a much more strong way and they believe in the return of the hidden imam uh, which some say might be the same person as jesus at the end of time and the, in the, the hidden imam is, as the Iranians refer to him, is the lord of the age. In other words, he's still the true master of the universe and, and politics and religion. But in his absence, the Shia clergy are really his deputies, his plenipotentiaries, potentials. Uh, uh, and and, uh, and as, as a result, they, they have a sort of an infallibility mm-hmm. that in Catholics may be ascribed to pope or to their senior cardinals. They have a kind of authority that uh, that uh, if you looked at the Christian case that Catholic uh, Cardinals or Pope have a kind of authority that the Protestant pastors don't uh, and, and and so that gives them much more ability uh, to to sort of lay claim to politics than uh, than let's say in Sunni countries is the case secondly and also because so does isn't... that
0: mean that by analogy and this is a question I'm not suggesting mm-hmm. does it mean that, there are more readily available leadership, leaders and leadership sort of path in Shiism versus Sunni Islam, because of what you just
1: described? Yes, first of all, aside from the religious part, historically, throughout most of Islamic history, the Sunni clerics basically were subservient to Sunni emperors, rulers, sultans, caliphs, who who were not religious people, Not, not men of religion. Whereas she is most of its history lived in, lived in uh, 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 very much like Judaism in Eastern Europe, lived as a persecuted minority. So the community was very much kept together and became uh, 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 attached to their uh, religious leadership, much like the role that rabbis played, let's say, in Eastern Europe during periods where they were in ghettos. And then in modern times, at least since the middle of the nineteenth century, the clerics, uh, the Shia clerics, became very much the voice of the people against uh, monarch- monarchy's absolutism, and especially against imperialism. Interesting. So, so uh, in the nineteenth century, when uh, the, the 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 rulers in Iran had to uh, accommodate British and Russian economic interest, it was the clergy that defended the merchants and defended Iranian nationalism. And and so there's a line that runs from Khomeini backwards, let's say, to middle of 19th century, uh, let's say in 1880s, 1890s, when the the clerics really flexed their muscle. They sort uh, of flexing
0: uh, their muscles for Iran's independence and and, and nationalism. Interesting. So, So they've
1: been politicized for a very long time. And they had a complicated relationship with with the with Iranian kings. I mean, it was Iranian kings in the f- 16th century, in 1501, who uh, made Iran Shia. And, and what do the, you mean made Iran Shia? The,
0: Iran wasn't Shia before that.
1: No, Iran was that actually. The, the Iran was Sunni, predominantly Sunni. Although there were pockets of Shi'ism here and there, but yeah. it was a predominantly Sunni. It was actually seat of Sunni learning. A lot of the great scholars of Sunni theology and law were were Iranian then, but then Iran became, in fact, the clerics were imported into Iran from Lebanon, from Arab parts of of the Persian Gulf where they lived in small communities. They came to Iran. At first, they were not Persian and therefore they didn't have much sway. And because Iran was made Shia uh, by the kings, the kings had the upper hand. But gradually- Was this a new dynasty that did this? The, it was the Safavid dynasty that did this, and, and then, uh, but under the Safavids, Iranian nationalism and Shiism fused because this was not just a religious issue. Iranian identity uh, uh, embraced Shiism as a way of distinguishing itself and protecting itself from the Sunnis around it, which is the Uzbek oh, wow. so Ottomans, the, yeah. uh, the Indian uh, Mughal Empire, and especially the Ottomans. So uh, the Ottomans massacred all the Shias that lived in Anatolia and the, and the Safavids massacred their Sunnis. And the more they became Shia versus Sunni, the more that the sort of this made Iranian identity distinct. So under the Safavids, between 1500 to let's say, uh, uh, at least till uh, uh, middle of 1800s, uh, 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 during that time period, Iranian nationalism and Shiism became fused. Iranians are distinct in the Middle East because they're not Arab and they're not Turk, but also because they're Shia. And because of this identity, the clerics found an important role in Iranian nationalism in defining the Iranian state. And this is a saga that has played to this day. In other words, why is it that the Iranian clerics uh, see, their, it's that their role to defend Iran to to define its identity in the Arab world. Islamic politics is led by lay people, not clerics. The Muslim Brotherhood was cre- created by lay people; its activists are lay people. They're not clerics. It's not a clerical oh. movement.
0: You're right. I had not appreciate that. Um, one last question about in this segment is when. Iran's constitution was being uh, drafted after the Islamic revolution. Was there any squabbling between different factions of Shiaism for the lore, role of the clergy uh, in a government that would be secular or founded on religious ethos? Or was it, were they all in line that this is the way it should be?
1: No, I, there was a segment of the clerics uh, uh, in Iran, small segment, but influential, but mostly also in Iraq, where they were not under the sway of Iran, who much like Ayatollah Sistani today, basically said the, the clerics should not be ruling because, because, because a perfect government is the job of the hidden imam, and we cannot pretend to be bringing perfect government. Uh, but Ayatollah Khomeini had a different theory of history so that we, 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 we will rule and pave the way for the hidden Imam. The main fights in the Iranian constitution was not a, between religious groups, was between Marxist-Leninists, liberal Democrats, and, uh, hardline Islamists, which had formed a coalition to overthrow the Shah. So uh, 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 the, uh, those guys lost out, but their imprint is there. So why did this become an Islamic Republic? Uh, why did it, be, so it embraced both absolutism of having a Pope, but also it's a Republican government. You know, as people have, have a right to vote and it represents the people in that way. Uh, uh, that uh, it has elections, even though they are limited, Uh, and it's uh, very limited at times, Uh, but nevertheless there are ongoing elections, not only at the national level, but at the municipal level and and lower levels. So a lot of that had to do with the principal factions that brought the revolution, but they were ideologically, politically so diverse that they couldn't have coexisted together.
0: I see. Uh, You you mentioned uh, people voting and their right to vote, which sets us up really nicely for our Uh, last section. So let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Nasser as we get into the perspective. (music) Professor Nasser, as I was preparing for my conversation with you, I began to appreciate something about Iran's form of government. And, and, And I'll highlight it with this example. Even if 99.9% of Iranians voted, we talked about voting before. So even if 99% of Iranians voted to legalize the drinking of alcohol in their country or that they voted to abolish women's hijab in their country, those things would never happen because neither is permitted in the religion of Islam. So in essence, Iran... Iran is free within limits, limits that are prescribed by religion. So even if elections were 100% free and legitimate in Iran, help, help me out here. Iran could never be a democracy because by definition, it's a theocracy. Am I making too much of this?
1: No, I mean, uh, you're absolutely right. It, it, it is both, it, is, it, it, it has both tendencies and it actually predates the Islamic Republic. The first major constitution uh, for Iran, which was a big uh, sort of a development even in the Muslim world was the 1906 constitution. And much like the 1979 revolution, it had very sort of disparate factions that brought it about. There were uh, religious leaders who supported the constitution and there were liberal Democrats impressed by the West that supported the constitution. And the Iranian constitution of 1906 made a compromise. That the parliament can legislate, but that th- there would be a council of clerics who could have a veto if that legislation crossed religious red lines. Now, during the Pahlavi period, they very conveniently did away with that uh, uh, clerical <laughs> part. But that, but that, but that idea came back in the form of guardian council
0: after the nineteen seventy nine. So, after nineteen
1: seventy nine. So, so you know, uh, uh, Iran is. Khomeini's view of government was play, was that of Plato's Republic. That uh, th- there has to be a group wow. of people, specially educated. I mean, he was a philosophy. He was a philosopher and was very well versed in philosophy. And and uh, he also knew Farabi, who who, who wrote a book called the uh, Madine Fazileh, which is sort of a, it's a version of uh, Plato's uh, Republic. But the idea being that perfect government uh, requires people who are, who are educated specifically. Are we talking about particular- like philosopher kings? That's right. So he was the philosopher king and the, and the clergy are, are, the, are the class of people that have to rule. But then that compromise had to be made with the leftists and the Democrats who also uh, played an important part in the overthrow of the Shah. And they wanted elections. They believed in the republic part of it. You know, it was that the, the people have to have a voice. So, so they accommodated that by actually having elections, by having accountability, by having a parliament that uh, uh, you know has a voice. And and this is a much like there is an unhappy coexistence between a Caesar, uh, sort of a pope and a president in Iran. There is an unhappy coexistence between. A Plato's conception of theocracy, theocratic government and the idea of, of, of elected government. So Iran has more elections, real elections, than its Arab neighbors. But its elections are severely curtailed, as you said, by who can run, who can participate, yeah. and what can be legislated. So we haven't arrived at a point where you know, the parliament in Iran would really go to battle with the supreme leader by sort of legalizing no hijab or legalizing <laughs> alcohol, and then he would have to veto it in that way. But there have been multiple cases uh, that it has come quite close that the, that that the government
0: come. go ahead
1: like uh, Ahmadinejad wanted to allow women to go in the stadiums or other uh, people basically said, this is what the people want. And, and the Guardian Council said no uh uh so now that iran's parliament is very right wing this issue is not going to come up but if the, if there if there were more reformists in iran's elections uh it, sitting in the parliament that then you know these issues would come up so uh, iran's political system is 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 a complicated byzantine system that is a That's an understatement
0: the, sir understatement but it's, yeah
1: it's a, it's, a, it's a product of the compromises that were made at the outset between very different conceptions of political theory. Uh, people who overthrew the Shah were liberal Democrats who wanted basically a Western style democracy. They were Marxist-Leninists who wanted a version of the Soviet Union. And they were theocrats who, who sort of followed Khomeini's theory of Islamic government. And, Iran's constitution it ha- has elements of all of these in it.
0: Oh, wow. If if you were to point out to one thing that us Americans don't understand about Iran, <laughs> beside the complexity of Iran's government structure and politics, what would it be?
1: So... Uh, I, I think Americans look at Iran, I mean, Iran definitely has a, 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 a severely authoritarian government that periodically, whenever it encounters dissent, brutalizes its population. Of course. Yeah. It has a view of itself, itself in the world, which is very unique. It uh, it's sort of uh, 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 sees itself as engaged. Uh, but it's very anti-American and it sort of sees itself still fighting the battles of the 1960s <laughs> when, uh, you know, that's sort of kind of third worldism and yeah. opposition to Western imperialism was there. So it's very peculiar in that way. And many Americans have now lost sort of touch with what those politics of that period was. I mean, Ayatollah Khamenei, in my opinion, is better understood as a octogenarian Che Guevara than as an Ayatollah.
0: I mean, his, okay, his, his, his
1: mindset is not decided by what he read in, about America is not decided by reading text is decided by this sort of 1960s anti imperialism, Vietnam War, Yankee go home, politics of the time period, which most Americans themselves have forgotten. I mean, exactly, kids yeah. at Berkeley in 1968 would understand him far better than kids at Berkeley would today.
0: Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But
1: at the same time. Americans see Iran as very binary, that here's a government and here is society. And, it, and and it's not that simple because Iran's government is multi-layered with many layers that are embedded in the society. And uh, the, the boundaries of where people start uh, and where government stops and where government stops, people stop start, is not as clear. I mean, uh, and it's shown in the voting. Yes, uh, Mr. Raisi is... It got fewest amount of votes of any uh, Iranian president in recent times, but it still got 18 million votes, which is close to a third of the eligible vote. Hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, in other words, that's not zero. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and so 18 million people still participate. Uh, uh, and, and, and the people who dislike the regime also work for it. Uh, also are in different ministries, uh, are also part of the system that they are also themselves fighting. So you have a very, very complicated society. You have a people that are very angry for where they are. You have a government that's out of touch with some of what its own people want and where the world is. But it's not as binary as we think. And I think uh, you have to understand that, that Iran moves very slowly, very slowly because of these complexities. And, uh, and, and you have to understand some of those in order to understand what is basically motivating it.
0: Professor Nasser, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.news. Anytime, there are several episodes that can be, <laughs> that can be had on the discussion about Iran's uh, politics and, 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 and its history. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the PL.news, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research. And we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history. The history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the peel.news, we peel the news for the history behind it. Share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with News.